The Gospel of Luke, the ninth chapter. This morning, we come face to face with life's most crucial question. There's many times that we can use hyperbole and we can say that this is the most important thing, this is the greatest thing, this is the highest whatever, but I would submit to you this morning, it's not hyperbole to say to you that this is the most crucial question in all of life, the question that we find in this text. This question affects every person in this room. It affects every person who's listening online, who's in the other room. This question absolutely affects every single one of us this morning. The answer to this question determines where a person will spend their eternity. Would you agree with me that's a pretty important question? Many books and blogs and articles and podcasts and ideologies and religious systems have attempted to answer this question. The scripture clearly answers this question for us. And the question and how you answer it will determine how you live your life. And so I would submit to you this morning that, that we all need to really pay attention to the question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And you say, that, that seems like a pretty just innocent question. But if you don't get the answer to this question right, you will have missed all of life. Luke has been building to this point. As we have been preaching through the Gospel of Luke, Luke has been building to this point. Earlier in chapter 9, King Herod asked what seems to be a very innocuous question when he says in chapter 9 and verse 9, he says, who is this about whom I hear such things? And Luke has been, had been building all through this, this chapter now to get to this point. In fact, in Luke's account of Jesus' life, he skips at least seven major life events that the other gospel writers record for us between the, the ending of verse 17 and the beginning of chapter 18. Luke skips seven events in his recounting of Christ's life because to him this all makes perfect sense now as he thinks this through. And so, this morning, it's been my prayer all week that, that you and I would be honed in, as honed in as Luke is to this, that, that we would have our attention riveted to this this morning, because it will be the most important question you have ever been asked. Maybe you've never been asked this question. Maybe this is the first time you're ever going to consider this question, but this is the most important question you will ever answer in your life. With that in mind, let's read Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Spirit, I am very aware that this morning, no matter what I say and how I say it, it's up to you and the power of the word of God to bring these things to bear in our hearts. And so this morning, I ask, Spirit, that you would rivet our weak attention to this text, that, that we would, would be disciplined this morning, that we would be good listeners to the word. I pray that each one of us, whether or not we've already answered this question in our hearts or not, but that each one of us would consider the question again of who is Jesus and what that means to me right now. Before we leave here, Father, I pray that you would cause us to rise to our Savior's call of discipleship by your grace, not through our self-effort, but that we truly would be those who would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. And we ask this in the name of Christ our Savior, amen. As we begin this morning, it's the question of identity. It's the question of identity. While Jesus is praying, you notice that in verse 18, Jesus is praying, which again just offers to us an insight as to the power where Jesus got the power for his ministry. It didn't come in the fact that, that, that he had this great ability to be an orator or that he had all of these other great qualities. His ability, his power for ministry came from the fact that Jesus prayed and that Jesus was fueled by prayer. And how much more do you and I need to be praying? It was a priority of his. But while he's praying, he breaks from that prayer, and, he, and he, you get the sense that he brings his disciples around him, and he asks them two questions. He asks them two questions. You know, you can learn a lot from just a question. You can learn a lot from just a question, and a, well, and a well-placed question and a well-timed question can give you a lot of information, it can give you a lot of insight, but it can do also a lot of teaching as well. Jesus many times taught with a question. And here we have him using questions to, to, to lead and teach these disciples. And the first question that he asks there is in verse 18. And, and it's a leading question that's leading him to his second question. Teachers in this room, you understand the value of good questions. And you understand how one question, when properly asked, can lead to a second question or a third question. Jesus' first question is a very important question. And he asked them simply, it's, it's a kind of an opinion question. It's a, it's a fact-finding question. It's not, it's not really a deep question. He just says, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And, and, and as he asks this question, he gets back answers that he would expect. If we just look back in the text into chapter 9 and verse 7, we find one of the answers. In, in verse 7 of chapter 9, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. So when they report back to Jesus the answer in verse 19, we shouldn't be surprised to read, they answered, John the Baptist. People are saying that you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Okay? But others say, verse 19, Elijah and others that one of the prophets have, has risen. 
we shouldn't be surprised by these answers. We shouldn't be surprised at the answers that we're given here. They see Jesus as a, a powerful person. They see him as a good guy. The prophets were good guys in their history. They, they revered the prophets. Jesus is this really good teacher on par with John the Baptist and the prophets. Our world today isn't much different. You ask people who Jesus is, most of them will, will affirm to you and will say to you, he was a good guy. Some will even say he was a holy man. His teachings are viable. They're worth, they're worth considering. He was a good person. He was a good role model. He's a man who, whose teachings, if you've not considered them before, you should, you should put them on your bookshelf along there with Muhammad and Confucius and other people. You should put Jesus on there, and he's on par with those people. He's just a good guy. And so Jesus has now engaged his followers, and they've given him these answers and let's understand, the world will, will talk to you about Jesus, and the world will give you an opinion about Jesus, but it's not, just, it's not enough to have a good opinion of who Jesus is. It's not enough to say that he's a good guy, that he's on par with John the Baptist or Elijah, because Jesus asks a second question. You see it there in verse 20? And this is the penetrating question, if you will. This is the question that goes beyond just what do people think about Jesus. This is the question that, that Jesus, if he were here, which he is right now, is asking to each one of us right now. Who do you say that I am? This is the question that determines our fate. This is the question that, that determines how we live. You may have never considered this question before. To you, you may be sitting here right now and saying this, I don't really care about the answer to this question. I will tell you this, and I promise you this, and I'm not being, being mean about, spirited about this. One day it will matter to you how you answer this question. One day it will matter to you. Whether or not you think this is an important question now, this is a vital question. And so Jesus gets beyond all the crowds and he says to, to his followers who are sitting there, the 12, who do you say that I am? Tell me who you think I am. And of course, we would expect who to answer. Peter, right? Peter's the one who's always opening his mouth and answering. And he gets it right. He gets it right. Because of what Peter has observed and what Peter has already had happen in his own heart, Peter makes this great confession and he says this, you are the Christ of God. Now, when we read that in our English, we're like, okay, I've heard Jesus called Christ. I know, I, I know who God is, but, but what does it mean that you're the Christ of God? What is it that Peter's saying here? What Peter is saying here is this. You are the Messiah. You are the long-awaited deliverer. You are the anointed one of God. You are the one who has been promised through all the ages. You are the fulfillment. You are literally God in the flesh right here in front of us right now. That is a huge statement that Peter makes with just four English words, the Christ of God. What he is saying is, all of the prophets have been pointing towards you. The promise from way back in the Garden of Eden where, where, where God made the promise to Adam and Eve that, that, that your seed is going to crush the head of Satan. You are the fulfillment of this promise. And now you are here in the flesh with us. What a great answer he gives. And may I submit to you this morning, and I, and I just want to reinforce this in your thinking this morning, Jesus is not just another prophet. Jesus is not just another good man. Jesus is not a political revolutionary. 
And Jesus most certainly is not one of many good options that are out there for you to choose from. Jesus is not like going to the showroom and buying a new car. You can get this one, you can get this one, you can get this one. It's not like going on the internet and deciding which one fits you best. No, Jesus is the only real deal. He is the one. He is the Son of God who is sent to redeem his people. He is the one who became a man, who lived a perfect life. And then at the end of his life, he was unjustly charged, and he was crucified and buried, and he raised from the dead to pay the penalty for our sin. And you and I must come to grips with the answer to this question, who is Jesus? Because if Jesus is just another good man to you, you're no different than the crowds in, in verse 19. If Jesus is just another option for you, another person that you're considering and you're weighing whether or not he's right or not, then, then, then he's not your Messiah. He's not your anointed one. Now, if I'm writing this story, when Peter makes this grand profession and confession of who Jesus is, I'm expecting Jesus to be like, yes, you got it. Right? Isn't that what we would expect there? Notice the response that Jesus gives in verse 21. Strictly charged. You might put it this way. Jesus sternly rebuked. Jesus warned and he said this. Don't tell a soul. What? Wait. You're the promised Messiah. We've got it right. We, we got the answer to the question right. You're the promised Messiah, and you're now telling us not to tell anybody about this? What is going on here? Luke, as I said, has been building to this point. And all along in the book of Luke, if you've been following along, and if you've been, if you've been coming and attending, and you've been hearing us as we've, we've taken this book and we've unpacked it, we've seen Jesus doing these remarkable healings. We've seen Jesus doing remarkable preaching. We've seen Jesus, everywhere he goes, is doing remarkable things, drawing huge crowds, and he's at the height of his popularity right now. This is it. He's at the height of his popularity because he's doing amazing things. And it's from this point on that that what Jesus now says in verse 22 comes true. Which leads me to my second point, the mission of Jesus. Why, why is it so important that Jesus is the anointed one and the Son of God? Well, he tells us in his own words here now in verse 22. Jesus uses a title for himself that he only uses for himself. No one else calls him this. He's prophesied about this in Daniel chapter 7 where he's referred to, but he calls himself the Son of Man. It's a title that's, it's a name that's used about 81 times in the Gospels, and it's specifically a designation for the Messiah, for the anointed one, but, but it refers to a certain part of his ministry and the fact that, that it's used in connection with the fact that he's going to suffer, that, that he's going to die, that he's going to have to, to endure hardship. Son of man implies that in the title that he's given here. And so what we see here is Jesus sharing with us his mission. Don't look at verse 22 and see verse 22 as Jesus just giving some kind of tragic prediction about what his future is going to be. Jesus is not hanging his head here and saying this, I'm going to have to die, I'm going to have to be, I'm going to have to be beaten, I'm going to have to be unjustly charged. I'm going to... Jesus is not sighing and saying this. Don't feel sorry for Jesus here. 
Don't feel sorry for Jesus or you're missing the message. What Jesus here is doing is he is proclaiming to his disciples, this is what is going to happen. There is one key word in that verse. There is one key word in that verse, and it is the word must. Do you see it there? The Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. That word must is a very small word, but it packs a big punch. This is God's plan from the beginning. This is God's plan from eternity past that his son would come and that he would suffer. Jesus must do these things. Peter refers to it in Acts chapter 2. You don't need to turn there, I will. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus said this, or Peter said this about Jesus when he's preaching to all the religious leaders who killed Jesus. This is what he says This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is God's plan. And now Jesus is revealing it to his disciples. This is a big moment. This is a moment that's going to bring a lot of clarity to them, but, but before you begin to make too big of a moment out of this, understand this, there's still going to be a little foggy on this, because after Jesus dies, what did they do? <laughs> they all scatter, right? They don't keep in mind that this is the plan that Jesus has been, been here to carry out all along. But let's understand what he's saying here. It has been God's plan from eternity past that I must do what? Well, I must be suffer many things, verse 22, that I must be rejected by the religious leaders and killed. And then finally, on the third day, rise again from the dead. You can look at many other religious traditions and other teachings that are out there. <laughs> Nowhere have I found that any religious leader, Muhammad's never done this. Muhammad never predicted that he was going to die and raise again and then actually do it. Buddha, Buddha never said he was going to die for his people. No other religious system has somebody dying for his people and then backing it up and coming back to life. And here we have Jesus predicting and saying to his followers, this is what's going to happen because it must happen. And it happened exactly as he said. He did suffer many things. He was rejected by the religious leaders. He was killed. And on the third day, he did rise again from the dead. He, he shares with them his mission. And let's understand this. To truly believe in verse 20 that Christ is the Son of God is to accept verse 22 that it had to happen for you. Let me say that again. For, for Christ to truly be your Messiah, then, then you need him to do exactly what he's going to do in verse 22. The two go hand in hand. You can't just confess that Jesus is the Messiah and then not have that appropriated to you. That does you no good. It does you no good. But it goes on from here. It goes on from here. When you and I confess Jesus as Christ, when we by faith receive his salvation that he purchases by dying and being buried and rising again, when, we, when that happens, we also accept a reality for ourselves. We accept a reality for ourselves, and the reality is found in verses 23 through 27. You see, these have to go together. You can't have verse 20 and verse 22 without having verses 23 and verse 24. It doesn't work that way. 
And I fear that for many of us, we want verse 20. We want to say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And yes, Jesus died for my sins. But whoa, 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 whoa on your call to pick up a cross and follow me. I'll believe, I'll believe that you died for my sins, and I'll pray a prayer, I'll walk an aisle, I'll do something to acknowledge it, but I'm not going to follow you. And let's understand here that Jesus, in his kindness, did not shy away from sharing what it means to be a follower of his. I want to submit to you this morning that most of us in this room would say that we're followers of Jesus. But I'm also going to submit to you that most of us in this room don't really understand what it means to follow him. And I'm also going to submit to us this morning that we're about to find out. We're about to find out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But let me point out, Jesus didn't hide the call and the cost. He, he laid it right out there for his disciples. If you want to follow me, this is, this is what it means to follow me. It's not going to be a popular message. And, and, and he doesn't say that this might happen to you, that this is a possibility that you may have to face. This is what he says. If you will follow me, this is what's going to happen. If you're looking for a Western exemption or a U.S. citizen exemption, there isn't one here. If you're saying that this is just for our brothers and sisters who are behind the Iron Curtain or who are, who are over in the Middle East or in China right now, you're missing the point. This is the call to all followers of Jesus. And let's understand what it is. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I was so excited to hear Andrew's testimony. I had the benefit of reading it earlier this week. Pastor Andy shared it with me. But I was compelled all the more to pray for him because as I was preparing this message, I realized, this, Andrew, this is what you signed up for, dude. This is what we all signed up for. As followers of Jesus, this is what we've signed up for. Is it not? And, and we, we need to wake up. And let's understand, first and foremost, to follow Jesus means I will deny myself. Do you see it there? If anyone would come after me, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, and that sounds good, I will follow you. Remember what Peter said? I will follow you to the death. Okay, if you want to follow me, this is what it means. First and foremost, you've got to deny yourself. Literally what that means is I literally disown myself. It's what it means in the original. I literally disown myself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul reminds us that we are not our own. We are bought with a price. If you have been bought, you don't own yourself anymore. And as a follower of Jesus, you have been bought. You have been, you have been purchased with the blood of Christ. That's your redemption price. Christ shed his blood. That is the purchase price for you. He now is your owner. You have been bought. And to disown yourself means this. It means that you give up all dependence on self and on your efforts and on your achievement and on your confidence in your ability and your works. Paul put it this way in his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. Turn over there with me to Philippians chapter 3.
I'm not picking on you, Andrew, this morning, but, but you're, you're an easy target this morning. Did you catch in his testimony that he didn't glorify the past that he lived? Did you catch in his testimony how broken he was about the past that he lived? He, Paul, Paul would have loved your testimony, Andrew, and here's why. Look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And now Paul's going to say this. Here, here are my credentials. Here is who I was before I was in Christ, and I was somebody. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whatever gain I had, I counted it as what? Loss. Verse 8, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Do you remember the day you got saved? Because the day you got saved, what you were saying that day was, is, is all this stuff that I held on to is not worth anything. Christ is worth it all. Christ is worth it all. Christ is worth it all. And, and, and to deny yourself is to say that Christ is worth it all. I give up everything else because Jesus having you, you are the pearl of great price. Remember in that parable, Jesus said he goes and he sells everything to get the great treasure. He searches all over the house to find the missing pearl because it is the pearl of great price. But it doesn't stop there. Go back to Luke chapter 9. It says, you want to be my follower first, deny yourself. Disown yourself. See yourself as sold to Christ. Secondly, pick up a cross. The cross is really cheap in our society. Can I just be honest with you? The cross has been cheapened. We have crosses hanging on our walls. We have crosses in jewelry. I guarantee you the first century Christians did not wear crosses around their necks. They, they feared the cross. They wouldn't hang crosses on their walls. They saw crosses when they went out and traveled down the roads. And crosses were filled with people who were dying and, and families all around them who were in misery. You and I, we've cheapened the word cross. To, to us, a cross that we have to bear is a boss who doesn't like us. That's the cross I have to bear. Or, or to be married to somebody that I'm not happy with, it's the cross I have to bear. Or, or to put up with a mother-in-law, it's the cross I have to bear. When Jesus said, pick up a cross, he was saying, pick up an instrument of death. Pick up an instrument of horrible death. Pick up an instrument of torture and suffering. And he says, how often are we to pick it up? What's it say there, church, in your text? Pick it up one time and set it down. Make your profession of faith and just go merrily on your way. Is that what he says? How often are we to pick it up? Daily. Pick up the instrument of death daily. When was the last time you felt the weight of Jesus' cross? When was the last time 
that, that you consciously in the morning woke up and said, yes, today, Lord, I will endure suffering. I will endure shame. I will endure hostility. I will endure rejection. I will endure persecution and possibly death for being true to you. You see, we've gotten inoculated into thinking that it won't happen to us. We live in the West, and then we get scared whenever some of our best and brightest get called to be missionaries, and they get sent off to those places. We get scared for them. Folks, I'm more scared for us that we're not willing to pick up a cross. And you know what's happening? We're getting revealed. It's happening. Our hearts are getting revealed. Because as our Western world becomes more and more intolerant of believers and those who would be obedient to Christ, we will have to endure more and more of this. And we all think we're ready. If we're not daily picking up the cross, we ain't ready for anything. As I stand and address you this morning, Pastor James Coates sits in a prison cell in Alberta, Canada, because he didn't limit the number of people that he allowed into his church service. Wake up, folks, it's coming. It's coming. Why is he doing this? Some people are on social media and speculating he's doing this just to make a a show and he's doing this for the attention. I guarantee you he's not. He's doing it because it's more important to obey and follow Christ than it is to submit to a government that's overreaching its authority. Are you ready to pick up a cross? Following Jesus means that I'll disown myself, and it means that I'll pick up a cross. And then thirdly, it means that I'm going to follow through. Do you see it there? You see it there in verse 23? Deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow me. It means that the pattern of your life will be to be obedient to him. I would love it if I concluded this service, gave an invitation, and 40 people came forward and got saved. But I would be skeptical. You want to know why? The price of following Christ is high. The price of following Christ is high. Andy, the price is going to be high at school. You're going to lose friends over this, dude. Right? That hurts, doesn't it? Guess what? You're in good company. You're in the company of the Apostle Paul. You're in the company of the disciples. You're in the company of people who are in this with you. You're in the company of James Coates, who's sitting in a prison today because following Christ was more important. Which leads me to Christ's final words. Christ gives us two principles to consider as we conclude this morning. Look at verses 24 and 25, the first principle. And here's the principle that Christ is giving. You can live your best life right now in the here and now, and it will gain you nothing in eternity. Or you can live, live your life by losing it right here in this life and denying yourself and picking up a cross, and you can gain it for eternity. 
Do you, do, you see the, do you see the difference here? You can choose to have the best life right now. You can choose it. But boy, it's a, that's a bad bargain. That's a bad bargain. And, and, and let's face it, we, we, we all, I, I, I put myself at the top of the list, I like to make myself as most comfortable as possible. If I was James Coates, in the day that I went to present myself to be turned in and, and to be incarcerated, I would probably pack a blanket. I would pack a few things that I wanted. Notice what he says. Whoever, verse 24, would save his life will lose it. You can live your life in such a way that you are preserving yourself here and now, but in the end you're going to lose it. And he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then he just asks the question, and this is another important question. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and you forfeit yourself? What, is it, what have you really gained? You gained nothing. You can have a comfortable existence. You can have nice things. But in the end, when you leave this life, you leave nothing, or you leave everything, excuse me, and you take nothing with you. I was thinking this week about our dear brother, Doc Newton. 97 years, and if you don't know anything about Doc Newton, let me just share a couple things with you. He was the leading child pediatric cancer researchers for blood disorders, probably one of the leading in the nation. He found a cure for childhood leukemia. Anybody think that's pretty important? If you had a child who had leukemia, yeah, you would think that's important, right? He was a brigadier general in the Ohio National Guard. Doc was so important that in 19, what was it, the, the blizzard of 77, is that right, the right year, 76, 77? During that blizzard, he was so important that literally from the armory in downtown Columbus, they plowed roads out to get to his house in Licking County and pick him up and take him back. Pretty important? Nobody plowed our roads when I was growing up then. But here's the thing. And if you really knew Doc Newton, and he would tell you about his achievements, he would. But he would tell you this too. There was nothing more important than knowing Jesus as his savior. And he got involved in taking the cure for childhood cancer to China because he loved the people of China and he saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel with them. You see, you can live your best life in this life, in the here and now, and in the end you've lost it all. Can I say this to you? The cost of not following Jesus is immeasurable. You can't put a value on it. Lose your life now, gain it for eternity. Gain the whole world now, lose your soul. Did you notice there's no middle ground there? Did you notice there's no middle ground? There's no Switzerland in that? It's one or the other. It's one or the other. But there's a second thing that Jesus says, and this is chilling in verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. Jesus is making a revelation here. He's making, he's making a statement here. I am going to return. 
I am going to return in all of my glory and, and the glory of my Father and, and of the holy angels. That's a, would you agree that's a pretty glorious return, right? And here's what Jesus is saying. If we're ashamed of him now, he will be ashamed of us then. Does that just not sound chills up your spine? Can you imagine Christ appearing in all of his glory and, and just looking at you with disdain? And so the question is, do you confess and embrace him as your savior now? And if you do, you have accepted the call to discipleship. Let me be clear again. You cannot accept his salvation and say, I don't want your discipleship. I'll take eternal life, but I won't take, I won't take the suffering. You can't, you, this, is not, this is not some option you can choose to not take. You see, it's more than just praying a prayer. It's more than just walking an aisle. It, 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 is, truly, it is truly a commitment. But let me say this. Those who, those who Christ has saved, he will keep. Those who he has saved, he will keep. And so you don't have to fear the road of discipleship because he is right there on that road with you. He's keeping you on that road. But you cannot say, I will accept all these good things you want to give me, but I'm not going to accept the cost. It doesn't work that way. And then one final thing. Was it hard for the disciples at this point right now in their, was it hard for them right now? Had they had a hard existence up to this point? Anybody? No, it hadn't been hard at all, has it? They were kind of cruising, weren't they? It was really good to be a follower of Jesus at this point. Did it get hard for them? When did they make the choice to follow Christ? They had that settled long before it got hard. Don't assume that you're going to make the right choice in a year from now. Don't assume that you're going to have opportunity to make that choice. Don't assume that when, when push comes to sub, that you will stand and that you'll be strong. Don't assume that. Commit now. Commit now. Now is the time. Now is the, now is the accepted day of salvation. Not just the day of salvation, but the day of accepting Christ's call of discipleship on your life. Don't wait until, until we're told, hey, People in Ohio, you're not allowed to come and assemble at church anymore. Don't wait till that week to make the decision about whether or not you're going to be faithful and assemble. Settle that now. Settle that now and say, I will be a follower of Christ, and I'm going to follow him closely right now. And then that decision doesn't become hard for you when it gets down the road. It's just a natural extension of what you're doing. I don't believe it was a hard decision for James Coates to meet with his church. You want to know why? Because he had determined that long before what he was going to do. He had determined that. Are you determined? Are you determined that you're going to deny yourself, take up a cross daily, and follow him? I pray so. I pray so.
Maybe you're here today and you've never considered the question of who Jesus is. I would absolutely love nothing more than to talk with you after this service. Maybe you say, PD, I, I need to talk to you about who Jesus is. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to stay down here in the front as much as I want to see all you folks and see the folks in the other room. It's more important that if you want to talk, I want to talk to you. I'm going to wait right here this morning because I, I want you to know for sure who Jesus is. Father, this is not a popular message. And I am reminded that in the word you tell us that, that broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life. And the reason it's so narrow is because it's not easy. But yet, Lord, I, I, I claim your promise for myself, for all these who are my brothers and sisters in this room, that, that you're right there on that path of discipleship with us. You're never going to leave us nor forsake us. That to, that to disown ourselves is to find the glory and joy of being owned by you. That to pick up our cross daily means that we get to share in the fellowship of your sufferings. And that to follow you means that we get to be close to you. What an amazing thought that that is. May we rise to your call of discipleship, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.